As we record this, it is currently three degrees in Chicago, I think with a, a wind chill of negative five. And I know it's not just Chicago that's cold. The whole, the whole nation, our nation as a whole, is freezing. Honestly, we are starting to crack. You're probably starting to crack, too. Uh, Mom to here has a tip. Yeah, I love the, um, this feature on my iPhone weather app. It just lets me add on places around the world where it's, you know, clearly more miserable than it is in New York. <laughs> And that's how I found uh, Verkayanks. Verkayanks, you said? Yeah, it's V-E-R-K-H-O-Y-A-N-S-K. Okay. So it's right now it's 3 in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I'm pulling it up. Negative 38 in Verkayanksk. Where is Verkayanksk? It's in the, it's in Saka Republic, Russia. And I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I mean, I dug around to, to you know, to, see how truly terrible this place could be. Apparently in 2012, it was attacked by a pack of wolves. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I think that should help. Blowing snow and wolves. And wolves and, and bronchitis and pneumonia and, and all the rest that comes with it. So there you go. If you want to feel better about the weather, just change your location settings on your weather app. So wherever you are, you'll know there's somewhere worse, unless you're in Verkhoyansk. Or Verkhoyansk. So just a short show for you today. We're on our way out of town, but we do want to get you one how-to. You may have seen the story about a Pegasus airline flight to Turkey that was hijacked by a guy who said he wanted to go to Sochi. Now, they tricked the guy into thinking he was landing in Sochi, and they landed the plane in in Istanbul. Turns out this isn't such a novel idea. Back in the 70s, this happened all the time. Brendan Kerner is online with us now. He's written a book about this period and and hijacking. It's called The Skies Belong to Us. So, so Brendan, tell us what it was like. Yeah, it's pretty hard for people to understand this, uh, having, you know, those of us who were born after this time period. But there was literally no security at airports in the late 60s and early 70s. You could pretty much, you know, walk from the curbside through the airport, oftentimes onto the tarmac and up the boarding stairs without a ticket, without showing anyone your ID, certainly without getting your, your person or your luggage searched. Uh, as a result, there were just a lot of hijackings taking place in the U.S. at the time. So, like, um, no metal detectors, nope. nothing. No, there, there, there was one thing they did have, which they, they brought in kind of towards the tail end of this hijacking epidemic of the late 60s and early 70s, and that is they taught the ticket agents um, a list of 25 behavioral cues to look for uh, in passengers. And so when you went to get your boarding pass, uh, the ticket agent would give you a once-over and, and think, well, does this person fit the profile I've been taught of a hijacker? Did they have questions that they would ask you as they were profiling you? Uh, no, it didn't work quite like that. It was basically a list of cues. It was things like, you know, not having sufficient knowledge of one's luggage, not maintaining appropriate eye contact. Um, actually, one of them was wearing surplus military gear was, was a tip-off <laughs> as well. Um, so it was not a very effective system. So it's a, a completely different airport environment. Um, so what was going on with hijacking? Yeah, they were they were pretty much a fact of life. Uh, between 1968 and the end of 72, there were 130 hijackings in the United States alone. That's amazing. Uh, often at a pace of once once per week. Sometimes you had more than one a day. There were multiple occasions when you had two hijackings in a single day. So what was what was the preferred method of the hijackers during this time? 
Yeah, there, there were a couple. Uh, certainly because there was uh, no uh, security whatsoever, you had a lot of hijackers taking uh, small firearms onto planes. That was quite popular. Uh, certainly knives. Um, someone who tried to bring a poisonous spider on a plane. Um, you, had, you, you have some people who certainly came on and said they had jars of acid um, that they were going to throw at people. So those who could not get their hands on more traditional weapons and were unhinged enough to try this certainly you know, were quite creative in terms of the weaponry they, they threatened aircraft crews with. What were the, the hijackers' goals? Where were they trying to go? Well, there was a kind of three phases of the epidemic. I think in the first phase, which lasted from 61 to 1968, you had hijackers only wanting to go to Cuba. That was the real popular, you know, take me to Havana was the instruction they give to the uh, aircraft crews, uh, you know, thinking that they would get down there and be greeted as heroes by Fidel Castro, when in fact most of them ended up in prison down in Cuba. Then, you know, then you had a, a phase of people going to places other than Cuba, uh, people going to Italy and requesting to go to North Africa or South America. And, and finally, in the, the very last phase of the epidemic in 71, 72, you had people asking for, for money, for ransom. So, so at, a, at a certain point, the U.S. government decides they need to get on hijacking. And so how did they go about trying to stop uh, the, this rash of hijackers? Well, towards the end of the uh, end of the '60s, you had the um, the FAA form an anti-hijacking task force, and this is the the group that eventually came up with the the hijacking profile that was taught to ticket agents. Right. They also solicited ideas from the public, um, and the public had no shortage of really inventive ideas uh, of how to stop hijackers, and some of them were pretty crazy. Um, certainly, a lot of people discussed having trap doors that you could put in into planes, put them right outside the cockpit. <laughs> Like drop uh, through to the ground? Drop, yeah, drop through. I, I think the popular suggestion was have a kind of holding chamber in the, in the luggage bay. Yeah. And so when they come to the cockpit, you drop them into this holding chamber um, and keep them there until you land. People talked about arming stewardesses with tranquilizer darts. And then there's some really zany suggestions. One that I particularly love is, is making all passengers wear boxing gloves on the plane so they couldn't grip any weapons. <laughs> um, another one was playing the Cuban national anthem before takeoff and then arresting anyone who knew the lyrics. Wow. Um, by far the most popular one, and one was taken quite seriously by the FAA for a time, was building a fake Havana airport uh, in South Florida. And the idea then would be to tell the, the uh, hijackers, yes, we'll, we're taking you to Havana. Oh, look, there's, there's the airport and land, and then arrest them in South Florida when they get off the plane. That's amazing. And that, that's kind of not unlike what, what they did with this hijacker last week uh, who was trying to go to Sochi. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think there, there's a sense among aircraft crews are dealing with someone who's, who's unhinged or intoxicated and, and can be duped into believing they're going where they want to go. So, I mean, it sounds like for several years there, it was just just kind of chaos. How, how did this wave finally come to an end? It really came down to a single incident. You know, through, throughout 1972, you progressively had, had more, and more and more bizarre and violent hijackings. Um, yet at the same time, the airline still refused to institute security on the ground to have universal meta detectors and x-ray machines. But then in November 1972, there was a hijacking um, involving a Southern Airways flight, a commuter airline, um, and this was down in Alabama. Uh, three men hijacked a plane and demanded $10 million, where they threatened to crash the plane into uh, a nuclear reactor in Tennessee. Whoa. And uh, that's really when the airlines realized that the risk management strategy they had no longer really made sense, you know, if you had hijackers willing to turn planes and weapons of mass destruction. So... 
shortly afterwards, they kind of gave up the fight, and starting in January 5th, 1973, was the first day of universal screening for all airline passengers. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about this. Hey, it's my pleasure. We got a note from Jared. He says he listens to How to Do Everything while driving home from playing Dungeons and Dragons. Jared, these next 15 seconds are for you. I hope you won tonight, Jared. I hope you slayed some dragons, at least. Yeah, or slayed some dungeons. I hope you you cast the spells you wanted to, to cast. I hope you showed good wizardsmanship. Yeah, I give you plus five hearing for listening to this. Form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood runs as black as the coal where it's dark as a dungeon damp as the dew danger is double pleasures are few we already mentioned uh, how cold it is here in Chicago. Right now it's three degrees. Uh, one consequence is uh, I was riding the train into work today, and uh, it was packed. The subway car was just packed with people. I was kind of smashed between two puffy coats. Right. The majority of the, the packaging is all coats, big, giant, thermal-insulated coats. So it occurred to me, how, how much space are we losing by having these puffy coats. How many people are being denied a trip on the train because of puffy coats? On the line with us now is statistician Mike Knopfnagel to help us figure this out. Well, based on the numbers that you gave me, the measurements that you took with you in and out of the puffy coat. Right. I, I, I measured myself around the shoulders 44 inches without a puffy coat, 54 inches with a puffy coat. So based on that, a person in a puffy coat is taking up about 25% of a non-puffy coated person's <laughs> face. Okay. All right. Right. So if we estimate that about 120 people can fit in a train car, assuming none of them are wearing puffy coats. That's right. That means we can only fit about 96 people if they're all wearing puffy coats. Okay. That's 24 people waiting on the cold subway platform that can't get on. Well, I looked up the number of riders that ride the Chicago trains on an average weekday. Right. And if we divide that by the number of people that can fit on a car, it works out to about 6,400 full train cars per day of riders. Okay. So if we do 24 people per car that are being displaced, multiplied by 6,400 cars per day, that's 153,000 600 displaced people per day. How is that possible? Feathers and air. Yeah. So think about that next time you put on your puffy coat. Right. Think about the shivering masses you're leaving on the platform so your feathers and air can have its own seat on the train. Well, I d but I also think, I think that one of the problems with this is that we're assuming that people stop squeezing in even, you know, when there are these puffy coats. Puffy coat compression, you think? That's what's happening. That just means that all those 120 people are still just squishing in there, but there's really only room for 96. That's right. They'd rather be squished between two puffy coats 
then stand on the platform and wait for the next train. All it is is like you're being hugged by everybody on the train now. It is. It's a big group hug. Well, uh, well, Mike, this is fun. Thanks for, for helping us out. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn today, Ian? I learned that flying used to be a lot more exciting. Yeah, every flight was like an in-flight movie. I, I do think that the he talked about how they, they considered arming flight attendants with poison darts. Well, I think the temptation for flight attendants would be too great. Like, all the time. Someone hits that thing, someone starts complaining about the pillows. Yeah. Crying baby becomes a peacefully sleeping baby. I, I do think it's a good idea if you're trying to make yourself feel better about the cold to think of places that are worse. Like Siberia. Yeah, yeah. Colonial Williamsburg, mm. I think, is that's a place that's generally going to be worse than wherever you are. Yeah, just any time of day, any season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forever 21. <laughs> How to Do Everything is produced by Stephen Tobias with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Seth Kelly, who we uh, we should probably go pick up. He's he's still acting uh, like a glacier. I think he's still mad at us and probably very hungry and scared. So far, if I had to summarize the reaction that I've gotten, um, it's pretty much number one pity. People are pretty much just feeling bad for me. Um, the second reaction I would say is just complete apathy. Um, Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks.